Well, good morning. That sounds like an important conversation, conversation about technology. I know parents are going to want to be here for that. Well, we continue in our series that we're calling Conversations. Your words have power, and your words do have power. Um, today, I want to talk to you about the conversations that you have at home and with your family. So very important. Uh, I, re I read the story of a young man that was standing before a judge because of his delinquent behavior, and the judge happened to know the boy's father. The boy's father had written many books on the law and responsibility, and the judge looked at the young man and said, your father has written so many things about the law and responsibility. What, do you, what are you thinking? What do you remember about your dad? And the young man replied, I remember that my father did not have time to talk to me. He was so busy writing and editing his books. You know, conversations is the thing, those are the things that link us to each other. Your words have power. And so today we're gonna talk about some of the most important conversations, and those are the conversations that take place right in our very homes. Now, I have three points, because I love three points, right, usually. Uh, actually, I have a couple sub points, but don't worry about that. Here we go. The first one is this. You know what the most important conversation you have every single day of your life is? It's the conversation that you have with God. Or it's the conversation you didn't have with God. What you say to God matters. Words spoken to God in a conversation, we call it prayer, are so important to you and to your relationship with God. One day, religious leaders and scholars were trying to trip Jesus up, and in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 40, this is an exchange, a conversation Jesus had with one of those guys. He says, teacher, which is the greatest, commandments in the, the greatest commandment in the law? I mean, this guy's like, all right, Jesus, bottom line this for me. What is, the, what is the most important thing? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You know, Jesus didn't say, remember, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. He says, hey, remember what you should be doing. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And because it's a God is a person, how do you relate to him? How do you express your love to him? You, you know how you do that? You talk to him. You have a conversation with God. You need to be telling God, God, I want to know how to love you. I want to trust you, and I, I want to let you in on my life. I, I want to follow you. Teach me how to love you. Teach me how to love the people around me. This is the most important conversation you will have every single day of your life. So I've got a challenge for you. For the next seven days, seven, you know what that is? That's a week. For the next seven days, I challenge you to wake up every day and let the first conversation you have be with God. You say, well, that's kind of, you know, for, I, I, this seems a little awkward to me. I'm not sure 
how I can do that. Here's what I want to tell you to do. Blunder through it. Endure the awkwardness. Start the conversation. Every day, for the next seven days, get up and say this. God, I know you're there, and I want to know and love you. So here I am today, and I say, God, I love you. You know, a few years ago, and I, and I mention this often, but it was so life-changing for me, I, I can't help but talk about it. A few years ago, as I was reading through the early parts of Genesis, there's this, there's this um, it's kind of the most boring chapter in Genesis, honestly, okay? Because Adam lived, he had a child, he lived this many more years, and then he died. Then, then Seth lived and had a child, and he lived this many more years, and he died. And I mean, it's just like, are you kidding me? We, we have a whole chapter in the Bible to, to state the obvious that everybody is born, they live, they have children, they die. They're born, they live, they have children, and they die. And, and then, uh, as I, in the middle of my boredom, I get to this particular section where it says, and Enoch walked with God and he was not because God took him. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't even know how to fit that in my theology. But apparently there was a guy early on in the history of mankind who believed he could have a relationship with God and it became so real and, and so amazing that God finally just says to Enoch, hey Enoch, just come home with me. Hebrews chapter 11 informs that even better, I think. Hebrews 11, five to six. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. Whoa. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. So in my mind, I'm thinking it is possible if Enoch somehow found a way to please God, that is a possibility for all, all people. And my prayer began to be, God, I want to please you. If it's possible for me to live a life that pleases you, I want to do that. And then verse six. But without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So this is what I want to say is plow through it. Embrace the awkward because there's a reality out there that could be yours. I remember early on as I began to reset my routines, the first conversation I want to have in the morning is with God. So I, you know, I, and, and because, because I, need to, I need to like, I'm not good at this, I had to find a way to like make sure I was doing it. My, my plan was I was going to go to my office and I would kneel down and I literally kneel down. I have this ottoman in front of my chair in my body posture helped me declare to myself, of course God knew, 
God, I'm looking for you. I'm seeking you. My prayer would be, God, I'm not sure I'm doing this right, but I'm going to keep trying. Try. The most important conversation you will have every day or not have is a conversation with God. So I challenge you for seven days, every day. You don't have to make it long and flowery, just like in the moment. Speak to God. God, I want to know you. I want to learn how to love you. And today, with whatever I have, I'm going to say I do love you now. Number two. The next most important conversations we have are with the people that we are with at home. If you're a parent, the conversations that you have around your children are absolutely vital to their growth and development, to their shaping of their understanding of who God is, what he's like, and those conversations are so important. Now, you gotta talk about all kinds of stuff, really. We're not calling people here to be monks. You need, you need to talk about the chiefs. I mean, Logan already talked about it, go Chiefs. Now, full disclosure here, I'm not much of a sports guy, okay? And because I live with Cindy and James, who neither one will ever turn on the football game, I'm left alone. And last week I was doing a wedding, and so it just never was on my radar. And then I started to see all of this social media stuff going on, that it was in a, great, a great game, and I'm searching to see, I mean, who won, the Bills or the Chiefs? Do, do you, does anybody even know? Yeah, you do. So this is my cheat, because I'm not a sports guy. I Google, and I get the 17-minute highlight reel. That's amazing. You need to talk about your schedule, about your chores, about who's taking out the trash. There's all kinds of things that you need to be talking about, but there needs to be a conscious effort, especially if you're the parent, to infuse in the conversation of the family from time to time something about God, how he, what he, who he is to you, what, what does he mean to you, what truths that flow out of scripture matter and, and maybe are applicable to the moment that you're living. Very important. You know, I remember when I was a young father, you know, I'm, I'm trying my best to be a good discipler of my kids, and I got two little girls, and I sat them down, and I'm giving them just one of the best devotions I could ever think of. And as I talked, I noticed, I don't, I don't know who it was, I think, I think it was Tiffany, and she's just a little tiny girl, and, and, and she looked at me so intently, and she was like hanging on every word, and I thought, oh man, we're getting somewhere. We're getting somewhere today. And, and she, she says, Dad, can I ask you a question? And I'm thinking, oh boy, this is it. I'm about to bring this girl home. I mean, this girl is about to get saved or something. And so, and I said, yeah, Tiffany, what is it? She says, um, can we go to McDonald's? <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say, please don't become a preacher because they're not gonna listen to you anyway, but there should be ways. I mean, they might, yeah. 
They didn't for me, but anyway. <laughs> you got to have some talking points, some things that matter to you first. That, that sort of discusses the majesty of God, the beauty of God's creation, the, the way he works. And I'm going to give you two talking points. Number one, did, this is so important. God made you. God made you. Turn to the person beside you, smile, say, God made you. Yeah, that's right, he did. I mean, you say, well, that's just like so remedial. No, no, this should be a regular part of our discussion as we process life, as we process what are people saying, what are people, how are people treating us? Um, because if God made me, and Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship. That word there means we are his masterpiece. We are his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I mean, God actually created every single one of us, and here's the truth about God. He loves diversity. He did not put you on an assembly line and make you just like everybody else. I mean, if that was the truth, if we were all clones of one another, who would ever want to get married, right? Like, I'm marrying myself, that's boring. Some of you got married and discovered how different you are, and that's an adventure. But we all have different fingerprints and handprints and voice prints. This whole biometric industry is because God loves diversity. Look down the road. You don't look like anybody else beside you. But we are his workmanship. And God has works for us to do. He designed us and he made us and we are here today in this moment, in this point of history and we have been uniquely created by God intentionally on purpose and he wants to use us to accomplish what he made us to do. And if you're a parent here today, everybody in your family, all of your children are different. I, I, you know, sometimes we hear this idea that if you're a parent, you gotta treat all your kids, kids fairly I mean, what you do for one, you do for the others. I mean, that sounds like really good theory, right? The only thing is, if you're a parent for very long, you notice that your children react differently to the, to the same speech because they're all different. I mean, to treat everybody fair isn't often a very wise way to raise your family because we need to discover who they are and fine-tune our approach for each one of the children in our family it is the parent's job to help kids accept their uniqueness. They don't have to compete with anyone else. Statements that dismiss their uniqueness like, why can't you be more like your sister? Why can't you be more like your brother? All of that stuff is contrary uh, to, to, to what the, the scripture tells us about what God has done. Some kids love sports, some don't. Some kids are great artists, some are great athletes. Everybody's different, this is the plan of God. So, number one, don't compare. You know, we, we live in a generation 
where there is more comparison going on on a minute-by-minute basis than ever before. Somebody goes out to eat, they order cream brulee with a little green leaf on top and little swirly, swirly things, right? You get what I'm saying? And they snap a picture and post it. And all of their friends look at it and say, whoa, they're in some fancy place. And then you look down and you look at your peanut butter and jelly sandwich and think, man, I'm not taking a picture of this. Did you know the comparison available for us today is unprecedented? And often this comparison is not doing us any good. In fact, the levels of depression are, are, are up in almost every age category. Every one of us are so different. We have different IQs. There are so many different kinds of intelligence also. I mean, some people have verbal intelligence. Some people have mechanical intelligence. Some people have musical intelligence or athletic intelligence, artistic intelligence. Some people are just, they have relational intelligence, which, by the way, is probably one of the most valued qualities. I mean, they just can read the room. They can, they can interact with people. I mean, all of these, we are different. Second Corinthians warns, we do not dare class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, they're not wise. God says, don't be comparing. You are who I made you to be. You are my masterpiece. I don't do mass-produced. I do individually crafted. First Corinthians 10.31 such a great verse. Listen to this. Therefore, whatever you eat, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Anybody here planning on eating or drinking today? You know what this verse actually says? Everything you do is so significant, it could be done to the glory of God. Like what you do matters to God. Could be for the glory of God. Oh yeah, it may seem mundane and ordinary, but if I'm doing this for the glory of God, all of a sudden it elevates who I am and what I'm about and what I'm doing. Um, we are God's workmanship we're not the same as everybody else. The other thing that we have to be careful of this, and as a parent, this needs to be discussed. Don't be conformed. There is this machine out there, it's called the world, that is constantly churning, trying to get everyone to do what everyone else is doing. Now, I have, I'm just gonna tip my hand as a dad in the room, said to my girls sometimes as they're wearing these expensive jeans with the knees torn out, hey, listen, I could give you some extra money to buy like a whole pair of jeans. That's such a dad thing to say, isn't it? But you know, James, I saw him the other day, he had his pair of jeans on, and he's like ripping his jeans because he wants to go buy holy jeans, but his dad has not agreed to that yet because I'm still, and actually, y'all wear your, your holy jeans. I think they look cool. I really do. But he's actively ripping them apart. 
Because there is like this machine. You, a new hairstyle comes out. You give it six months and everybody's going to be looking like that. There is this natural tendency to be conformed. Like we don't want to like stand out so much. We want to be as cool as everybody else is. And but being conformed can steal you away from the plan and purpose of God and make you feel like you're less than. And that's not the way God wants it. Romans 12, 1 to 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Don't think like everybody else, especially when it's not a godly approach or a truth-based approach to life. Parents, we need to also be aware that we often, like, invisibly are predisposed to want our kids to be like us. We want them to like what we like. If you played sports, you want them to play that sport. If you, if, I mean, this, if we're not careful, we will pressure them to be like we envision them that they should be, which is a whole lot like we are, but the truth is that God gives you kids who aren't like you on purpose. And when you force them to be like you, you create this sense of rejection and deep frustration. We need to let our kids be who God made them to be and celebrate who they are. That's what we need to be doing. So God made you. Number two, God values you. He does value you. Parents need to affirm their kids' value. All of us need affirmation all the time. You know what one of my biggest fears is? That I'm not going to be good enough. You ever feel that way? I mean, we need daily affirmation. We have a deep hunger to be trusted and accepted and loved and valued. And we, we need people to tell us that. I read the story of an older couple. The wife asked the husband. She said to her husband, do you, do you still love me? You never tell me anymore. And the husband said, hey, I told you the day we were married when we said I do. If I change my mind, I'll let you know. I'm just going to say, husbands, that was a miserable couple. Don't follow that example. In our family, we have this tradition that we call words. Words. When it's somebody's birthday, everybody around the table after we have our meal, we go around and we say words of affirmation. Like simple things like, Holly, I love the way you can fix anything. And all the rest of the family says, yeah, when we can't figure it out, we go call Holly. I have kids in California that still call their sister Holly because Holly is the most mechanical among the bunch. We have some that are good talkers, some that are good singers, some that would like to be good singers, but boy, they are not. 
But we just sit around the table and we, hey, I just love the way you've done this. I've done, I love the way you struggled through that tough time in school. But man, you overcame. We need words of affirmation. There are times when people are at our house and they get to land on a birthday dinner and, you know, I always like to give the disclaimer, hey, listen, we're going to do this thing called words. Please don't feel obligated to say something good about the birthday celebrant. Uh, most of the time they feel like they get roped into it, and I don't mean to do that to anybody, but if you're there for the celebration, we are going to do words because we all need to know we're valued. Rick Warren tells, tells the story of a junior high boy that went to a, a, a school for kids that had special needs and concerns, and, and this boy was, was there because he had a very serious anger management problem, and um, he was chosen at the end of the school year to give a speech because he was the most changed student in the school, and this is what he said in his speech. Junior high, listen to this brilliance. My life was like a campfire, out of control. My life was sending sparks everywhere, and my anger was burning everybody. And then he tells how his parents and his small group in the kids' department of his church affirmed him and accepted him, and these people started filling up his bucket, and he began to feel valued, and, and he says, I am still a campfire, but now people want to come to me to get warm. They are attracted to the fire, and now they're making s'mores over me. Do you know what a s'more is? Transformed because people affirmed him, told him that he was valuable. Where do we get this idea? In Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 to 31, Jesus says, hey, listen, are not two sparrows sold for one copper coin. You know what that means? They aren't worth much. That's what, okay, that's what that means. Two sparrows are worth one copper coin. And yet, not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will and attention, okay? God notices. And if he notices the birds, don't fear, he says. You are more valuable than many Sparrows, I want you to hear today, anybody here who doubt, doubts your value, can you say, oh, but I used to be valuable and then stuff happened in my life and now I, I don't think I'm very, very valuable anymore. You know what God, you know what Jesus would say? Oh, no, 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 no. You are so valuable. I count the hairs on your head every day. One of my favorite passages is Psalm 139. It talks about how that God formed us in our mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made marvelous are your works and that my soul knows, knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance yet being unformed. Uh, in, in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O oh God. How great is the sum of them. Should I count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Here's the deal. God thought you up. God wants you here. 
he values you so much. He also values you so much that he gave his only begotten son. 1 Peter 1, 18-19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You know how much something is worth? It's worth what someone's willing to pay for it. Have you ever tried to sell your car? And you think, oh, this car's good. I bet this car's worth a lot. And then you put it out there. Turns out not, not everybody else thinks it's worth as much as you do. Ultimately, you know what it's going to be worth? It's going to be worth what someone is willing to pay. And the cross of Jesus Christ says, I am willing to pay for you with the blood of my son. I love you. I'm never going to give up on you. I value you. These are the things that need to be spoken about in our homes. They need to be infused into the very sort of nature and, and um, conversation of our homes. That's going to matter. Then lastly, every family should have stories to tell. Family stories. You know, like your uncle that caught the biggest fish ever in Lake Tanicomo. It was this big, right? I'm not talking about those stories. Well, maybe. I'm talking about the stories of our lives. My daughter Tiffany was doing a podcast as a part of her duties at the church that she serves in. And she was doing Psalm 136. It's the great Hallel, which means to a praise to God. And um, the, the, the focus of this, Psalm 136, is the mercy of God. The word mercy comes from the Hebrew word hesed. I mean, we think of mercy, well, you, you know, I'm going to forgive you. But, but hesed is bigger than just that. It is sort of like wrapping up together undeserved kindness and generosity. All together, it describes a kind of love that is feeling put into action. The rescue of a loved one, Hesed, is not about infatuation. It is about faithful, loyal action, commitment to you. It's, it's love at its purest. And Psalm 136 goes like this, and my, my daughter was reading this. Um, and I, I, want, I want you to help me, okay? Uh, this is a call and response, which we don't do very often, right? But I want you to help me, because we're going to do a little bit of it today. Uh, Psalm 136, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, and the crowd would respond, for his mercy endures forever. Can you say that? For his mercy endures forever. Here we go. For his mercy endures forever. Okay, now I'm going to skip around because Psalms 136 is long, but this is how it goes. Uh, 
I'm going to pause and you're going to answer. Ready? Uh, oh, give thanks to the God of gods. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who d alone does great wonders. To him who by wisdom made the heavens. And it goes on and on and on. Verse 10, to him who struck Egypt in their firstborn and who brought out Israel from among them, who with a strong arm and an out, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, to him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it. In her podcast, she said, now I didn't grow up in a tradition that would read this, but actually, if you're going to notice, it's an incredible teaching tool because as the younger people would come in and they would recite Psalm 136, it would elevate to a discussion, hey, Dad, what in the world is this all about, the Red Sea? And the response would be, let me tell you the story of our people. Let me tell you the story of what God did. What is this about Egypt? And well, let me tell you, before our people used to be slaves in Egypt, but then God in his mighty deliverance came and rescued us. And okay, do you see, you see how this is working? Because every family and every people need to recite the narrative. In her podcast, she said, I didn't grow up with a, a tradition that did that, but we did, in fact, around the table, recite the stories of our family. She said, like the time my dad sat us all down and said, kids, I'm so sorry, but I don't have the money. We were missionaries. We didn't, the money didn't come in. I don't have the money for your tuition, and so I'm not even sure if you're going to school because, you know, without the money, they won't let you sit. So what we need to do is we need to pray today that God would provide the money for the tuition so you could go to school. And in that moment, she remembered that. Now what I remember was, at that juncture, Cindy added, oh, and Eddie, while we're praying for tuition, let's pray for enough money to buy everybody new school clothes because everybody's grown and all the clothes are old. And, and I'm, I'm smiling, but I'm thinking inside of my heart, Cindy, stop it. Don't load this thing up. I want God to succeed here. Isn't that funny? But I couldn't, of course, express that in front of my kids. Afterwards, I said, Cindy, what's up with you asking for clothes? Let's just get the tuition. It wasn't very long after that prayer that I returned to the table and I said to my kids, hey, I gotta tell you something. God has amazingly provided the money for your tuition and school clothes. We had a church that was a supporter who had stopped supporting, but then they wrote me a letter and said, hey, listen, our church is not gonna be able to continue, so we are closing the doors and whatever monies we have, we're dividing it up between the missionaries we have supported. And so here we're giving you our last offering. And, that's what, and it was enough money to pay the tuition and buy school clothes. And the story of our family highlights the provision of God 
And we've got more. Times when God healed. Times when God protected us, when we were surrounded with three men with guns, one pointed at my head, and the Lord delivered us. We have stories about when each one of them came to faith in Christ, and we cherish the baptism video of James where he so beautifully in his way declares the gospel and his faith in Jesus. And on and on and on. You need to develop the stories in your family. Not really just develop, you just need to report them. It's being grateful. Your conversations have power. Your words have power. You know, we began with the story of a man in front of a judge who said, well, my dad wrote many books, but he never talked to me. I want to tell you the story of another man. His name is Jonathan Edwards. He was born, he lived in the 1700s. That was a long time ago, everybody. Jonathan Edwards lived in the 1700s, but he was one of the most brilliant men in the history of this nation. In fact, he went to Yale at the age of 13. He, he became the president of Princeton. In 1727, he married his wife, Sarah, and they had 11 children. Now, Jonathan Edwards was a busy man preaching. Uh, he was a, a college president. Uh, his writings, if you buy the Yale edition of Jonathan Edwards' writings, it's a 26-volume set with 16,000 pages. This guy was a high-capacity intellect and a leader. And, but every night, Jonathan Edwards would go home, and it, it's reported that for the first hour after coming home, he spent that time in conversation with his 11 children. And in fact, he went on, it goes on to report that he would actually go and lay his hand on every one of his children and he would bless them and pray a blessing over each one of them. Can you believe that? There was a study done that traced the legacy of men Jonathan Edwards, they did a study of his descendants for 150 years after his death. And while I know that not all of his descendants uh, probably accepted Christ or followed God, and you know, as parents, you can't decide the outcome. But you can decide to love even in hard times and continue a conversation that honors God. Even when the results aren't panning out like what you want. And I would encourage parents, don't ever give up. Keep loving. Keep believing. Keep asking God. Keep talking to your kids. Because that's how God feels. But Jonathan Edwards leads an, leaves an incredible legacy according to the study that was done. One U.S. vice president or among his offspring, a dean of a law school, a dean of a medical school, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 65 professors, 75 military officers, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 100 clergymen, and 285 college graduates in the 1700s. Can you believe that? This study concludes that how a parent raises their children, the love they give, the values they teach, the emotional environment they offer, the education they provide influences not only their children, 
but for four generations to follow, either for the good or the evil. Keep having conversations. Keep talking to the people in your household. Some of you are in dorms. Keep talking. Some of you don't have children. Maybe volunteer for our Kid Street area. You know, studies show that kids succeed if they have at least one solid adult who can speak into their life. Did you know that? It's not babysitting that's going on. And we always need adults who would be willing to invest in the next generation. Keep having the conversations. And today, my challenge specifically is this. Will you commit for the next seven days to get up every day and let the first conversation you have be with God? Find your way to your knees if you can do that. Fumble through a prayer. God, I believe you're there. I want to know how to love you. As best as I know how today, I'm going to say I love you. Some of you maybe are here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. He loves you so much, He died for you. He's the God who made you and created you and values you. Invite Him into your life. 